All right, we're going to start a new series last week. We're just kind of playing with words a little bit here. Instead of saying things that Jesus said, we just take a negative spin on it and said things that Jesus never said. And somehow it just seems to have more, more of an impact or more, uh, more powerful. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the whole Bible. It's all powerful. It all speaks to me. But it's just something a little more special about that red letter. If you've got a red letter edition, those red letter words, the words that literally Jesus spoke. And so that's what we're focusing on. And again, they're very powerful. They're very transformational. Now, I never met anybody, maybe it'll happen, that told me that their goal in life is to be miserable. Now, I've met some people that want to make other people miserable, but I never met anybody to say, hey, my goal in life is to be miserable. We all want to be what? Happy, right? We all want to be happy. So let's imagine some things that Jesus didn't say. Jesus said, didn't say, go into all the world and preach the gospel and tell people just to be happy. He didn't say that, did he? And he didn't say, come follow me, take up your, don't take up your cross, just do what makes you happy. He didn't say that either, did he? So we're going to look at uh, a powerful story from the New Testament, one of my favorites, and the reason it is is because it's had so much to say about us as people and so much to say about God. And some of the stuff is stuff we don't like to know or hear about ourselves. So it's in John chapter 8. We call it the woman caught in adultery. And some of you probably know the story. It goes like this. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he came back again to the temple. Now, we were just there a couple months ago, and it's not very far. (laughs) You can look across this little valley, see the Mount of Olives, that's at the temple. If you're at the Mount of Olives, you can can see the temple. It's maybe a half a mile. You've got to go down and back up. So evidently, Jesus was at the temple. He went and spent the night uh, in the Mount of Olives, and then he came back to the temple. Now, why did he come back to the temple? What was he doing in the temple? Well, he, a, a crowd gathered. Ah, oh, Jesus is here. What did they want to, Jesus, from Jesus? They wanted to sit down and listen to what he had to teach. He had some, some unique things to teach, some powerful things to teach. So people wanted to hear it. So they gathered. And so that's the scenario. He's sitting down. I'm not sitting down now, but he was sitting down teaching the people. What happened next? So as he's speaking or teaching, the teachers of religious law, so these are the, you know, the pastor-type people, people that teach the Bible uh, back in Jesus' day, and the Pharisees, they're, they're religious leaders, professional religious people. These were considered the most religious people in their society at the day. We might, I don't know who we would think, somebody, a monk in a monastery, I don't know who we would think would be. They brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery to this Bible study that Jesus was teaching, right? They bring this lady and set her down in front of Jesus and say, hey, we just caught this lady in the act of adultery. Now, these Pharisees, we were very religious but not very spiritual. In fact, we consider them very hypocritical. They acted one way on the outside and but we're different on the inside. So just kind of visualize this. <laughs> you know, we're having a Bible study here at, at church, and a group of religious leaders uh, 
bring this lady in and, and drop her down here on the floor and say, hey, we just caught this lady in adultery. Kind of an odd scenario, right? Now, a couple of problems with the scenario is, one, the Old Testament said, and we're going to see what the penalty is for adultery, but it's equally for the man as well as, well as the woman. Where was the man? No man was brought. Was he a friend of theirs? Uh, did he run away? We don't know, but only brought the woman. They didn't bring the man. And how did they catch her? Was somebody a peeping Tom looking through windows? Um, did somebody hire a detective, that, you know, a private detective to, to check on their spouse? Uh, we don't know. It's kind of odd that this woman was caught actually in the act of adultery. So if she caught in the act of adultery, maybe she wasn't fully dressed. We don't know. But anyway, they plop her down in front of Jesus. So what in the world? I'm thinking if I'm Jesus or I'm the person teaching the Bible study, what in the world is going on here? So the story goes on. Teacher, he said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, our Bible, says the penalty is to be stoned. What do you say? Ah, interesting question, right? Uh, historically at this time, they weren't stoning people for adultery. But that's what the Bible said, their Bible said. So what was the purpose, what was the motive of these religious leaders bringing this lady to Jesus? Well, the next verse tells us <laughs> they were trying to trap him. So it wasn't for a good reason, it was for a bad reason. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, one reason I love this story is because it's like a no-win situation, right? If he said, yeah, go ahead and stone her, he's going to look like a, a, a Pharisee. He's going to look unloving and not caring, uh, not any different from the Pharisees. And one of the reasons people liked Jesus is because he was different. And so if he sided with them, agreed, yeah, that's what the Bible says, um, he's going to lose the crowd. If he says, no, 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 we, we, we need to give her a pass, we, we shouldn't do that, then he's saying, hey, we don't need to listen to the Bible, we don't need to follow the Bible, we don't listen, need to listen to God. So it's a no-win situation. I'm thinking, I don't know what I would do. Um, I don't know what you would do. And let me ask you a simple question. Whose job is it to judge? Now, obviously, these Pharisees thought it was their job to judge, right? But if we read our Bibles, it tells us it's not our job to judge. Our job is to love and, and love people, and it's God's job, job to judge. So that's the scenario. Jesus is in, the, like in this no-win situation. And so what's he do? He doesn't answer the question. He, what's he do? He stoops down and starts writing in the dust with his finger. Now, preacher types have been imagining this for 2,000 years. What did Jesus write? Imagine, what did he write? Some people say maybe he was writing down the Ten Commandments or maybe this law from the Old Testament. The most fascinating thing, I think the most likely thing, is especially because of the word used here, the Greek word used here, there's two words for wrote in Greek. One means just to write stuff. This word, though, means to literally write down stuff against. So who is he writing down stuff against? Is he writing down stuff against the lady, the woman? 
Knowing Jesus, I would say, no, he's probably writing down the sins of this guy that said, asked Jesus the question, this Pharisee, this religious leader. Can you imagine your sins being written down, even in the dirt? Uh, it'd be pretty uncomfortable, wouldn't it? <clears throat> so we don't literally know, but he's stooped down and writing something against somebody. But they didn't give up. They were persistent. They kept demanding an answer. What's your answer, Jesus? What's your answer? What should we do? So he stood back up again and he said, all right. (laughs) But let the one that has never sinned throw the first stone. How brilliant is this? And literally, that word never sin, none of us here have never sinned, but it literally means never thought about sinning. Who, who, who fits that category? The one who has never ever thought about sinning, you throw the first stone. Ooh. <laughs> what am I going to do? We so easily point fingers at people, don't we? So then he stoops down again, starts writing. Maybe the same thing, maybe something different. <laughs> and just lets that question hang there. You without sin, you can throw the first stone. So what happens? So as time passes, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, some of us are older than others, and we all have a tendency to be self-righteous, think we're better than other people, our sins aren't as bad as theirs, we can always find somebody that sins adultery, and oh, I never committed adultery, so I'm better than them. So we tend to be self-righteous, but as we get older, and we've messed up so many times and done so many many things, we tend to be less self-righteous, I think, all right? And so it's interesting because the oldest started from the oldest saying, yeah, 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 I've sinned so much in my lifetime, I certainly can't throw that stone. And eventually I think it got peer pressure. So if there's 50 people there and 40 of them leave and you're one of the last 10, what are you going to do? You're going to leave too, right? And so eventually they're all gone. <laughs> so imagine all your audience, your Bible study group is gone. The accusers are gone. We're soon... <clears throat> Um, they're gone, and then Jesus left with this woman. So he stands up again, and he says, where are they? Where, where are your accusers? Uh, isn't even one of them left? Now, we can imagine what Jesus said after that. We could say, okay, everything's good. You're off the hook. Go on and do whatever makes you happy. Is that what he said? Yeah, that's not what he said. She said, no, Lord, no, they're, they're all gone. And then he said two things. He said, neither do I condemn you. That's not my job. That's not why I'm here. But go and sin no more. He didn't say go and not commit adultery anymore. He said go and sin no more. So I, I can just... I feel, I can almost hear the love in Jesus' 
response, but also the urgency. Don't wait around. Don't fool around. Don't play around. Go. Go get away from this. Be free. So I want to try and answer a question this morning. Why do you and I give in to temptation so often? There, there we go. Why do we give in to temptation to sin so often? I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to raise your hand. Let's be honest. How many of you believe sin is fun? Come on. Come on. Every hand should be up. Otherwise, you're saying sin is mis- makes me miserable, but I'm doing it anyway. And I'm going to read it. The Bible is going to tell you it's fun. If it wasn't fun, you and I wouldn't do it. Would we? So that's part of the problem. Sin is fun. But here's the bigger problem. Sin promises satisfaction and fun at the cost of disobedience of God, obviously. And eventually pain to you. Rick Warren says it this way, sin has a kick, but the kickback's always worse. So here's a kick. It's fun. Otherwise you and I wouldn't do it. But it's pain. So the writer of Hebrews addresses this. He says, and he uses an amazing example. He uses Moses. He says, Moses chose to share the oppression of God's people. Remember, he was raised in the palace, with the Pharaoh's palace. He was raised like a prince. Can you imagine the pleasure you can have as a prince? All his fellow Israelites are slaves. No rights, no privileges at all. No pleasure, we would say. He said he chose, instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin, of being a prince, why would he do that? Because the pleasure is what? Leading. It's short-lived. It's passing. It's temporary. So what about this woman? I'm trying to think in modern context. How did this woman get here? Did she just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to commit adultery today? I, I don't think so. Or was she the town prostitute that just kind of, her job was to ruin marriages? No, I, I don't think that was a scenario at all. I would think she was just like most other women. And she got married sometime in the past. And we have these visions of marriage being, you know, happily ever after. And it doesn't work out that way. Maybe it was worse than that. Maybe she was in a loveless marriage. Maybe her husband was abusive physically or mentally. Uh, we don't know. And she may be in some kind of workplace. And she's interacting with different people and then she begins to interact with some, some guy and he, he's nice to her. And maybe even compliments her. Compliments on her hair. Oh, I like your highlights in your hair. And my, I, don't know, I don't notice my wife's hair. She goes, say, hey, don't you notice my hair is different today? And I was like, oh, what, what's the difference? But anyway, so he notices her hair. He compliments her. Maybe they, you know, develop a friendship and so one day, maybe they're sitting to have lunch together, or maybe there's more people there, not just the two of them, and he begins to share about how unhappily, how unhappily married he is, and married the wrong person, and, you know, and he starts to share, and, 
And, and she begins to share about her unhappy marriage. And then maybe sometime they, just the two of them together, and maybe they brushed hands or brushed shoulders, and she got this, this excitement, this thrill, this chill. Was that on purpose, or was that an accident? And then one thing led to another, and eventually what happened? She's laying at the feet of Jesus, being caught in adultery. So how do these things happen? Well, one of the big problems in our society is relativism. That's a big word, but all it simply means is this. What's true for you is, what you feel is true for you is not necessarily true for me, and what I feel is true for me is not necessarily true for you. Give you an example. I believe abortion is horrible, terrible. I can't imagine anybody doing it, but there's half our population that believes it's perfectly fine, right? And so we know there's truth in math and science, but in moral issues, you know, we believe it's relative. What makes you happy? If having an abortion makes you happy, you have an abortion. So that's the society we live in, right? But it influences us all, doesn't it? So we tend to think, well, you know, that's okay for you, but it's not okay for me, or this is okay for me even though it's not okay for you. But here's the problem. Without a belief in absolute truth, then truth is to find whatever makes me happy. Oh, well, I'm cheating on my wife's going to make me happy, so I'm going to cheat on my wife. Happiness becomes a standard. So I'm going to lie because it makes me happy. I'm going to steal because it makes me happy. I, you know, the list is endless. I'm going to do whatever because it makes me happy. So kind of trying to get to the root of this. Where, where does the thinking come from? And I think this is a big part of it, especially for those of us who are Jesus followers. If you're not, we're just delighted that you're here and, and we're sure this is going to be helpful to you. <clears throat> we think... I think most people, we think that happiness and holiness are at, at odds. How many people have you told, hey, why don't you come to church with me? Oh, no, I, they don't say this to you, but I don't want to go to church because I've got to give up whatever, <laughs> right? And I enjoy doing this, so I'm not going. But we inside here believe this way. We got, we choose, we, 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 we get subtle. You know, I believe if, you know, I can be holy, I can do what God wants me, but I, it's not going to be much fun. Or I can have this fun over here, but it's not going to be what God likes, and, and um, I'm not going to be very holy. But let me ask you a simple question. And I, I say this often. It always goes back to the character of God. So what's God like? Does he want his children to be miserable? Does he want his kids not to have fun? Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at last week a little bit. Here's what he said it. So you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children. I'm a parent. I've got four kids. You know, we gave them nice gifts on their birthday and Christmas and other times. We didn't not give them gifts. We didn't give them horrible gifts. We gave them good gifts, right? So you and I, we're not perfect. We, we mess up. We do that. So a perfect, loving, heavenly father is going to do what? Always give good gifts to those who ask them. Max Cato has this wonderful illustration. He said, how happy is a fish on a beach? 
And we can say to the fish, hey, we got a million dollars for you. Is the fish going to be happy? Or we can get you a, a thousand followers on Facebook. Is the fish going to be happy? Or you can have all the drugs and alcohol you want. Is the fish going to be happy? They don't have Playboy, Playfish. We can give you all the Playfish magazines you want. Is he going to be happy? Why not? Because a fish wasn't made to live on a beach. It was made to swim in the water. Just like you and I were not made to sin, but to be in fellowship with God. So, sin promises satisfaction or, or fun at the cost of disobedience to God and eventually pain to you. Can you imagine that fish flopping around on the beach? Pretty painful, right? But here's the reality. Here's the truth. Holiness isn't mutually exclusive of happiness. You and I don't have to make that choice. Yeah, I'm going to be godly, but that's not going to be much fun. No, 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 no. That's Warped thinking. The reality is this. Holiness, godliness, doing what God says, what God wants, is the pathway to true happiness and joy. You think that lady caught in adultery was happy? She thought this adultery was going to make her happy, but she wasn't happy. Can you imagine Jesus saying to her after everybody left, Ah, I'm disgusted with you. You're pathetic. How could you do such a thing? That's probably what you and I would do, wouldn't it? That's what you and I would say. Now he said to her, hey, get out of this. There's something so much better than this. You don't need to live on the beach. You can swim, be free, and swim in the water. So sin is a trap, and we've all been trapped. Sometimes we use the word addiction. Some us physical addiction, some of it's mental addiction, emotional addiction, so forth. So what do you do when you're trapped? So what do you, what do, you do when you're trapped with the pills or the drugs or the alcohol? And you promise yourself you're not going to do it again and, and you do it again. What do you do when you're trapped in a food addiction? I don't know if we call it a food addiction. The Bible calls it gluttony, right? <laughs> when we eat more than we should, and we eat stuff we shouldn't eat, and we say, oh, we'll start the diet tomorrow, or we get off our diet, what do you do? And what do you do when you spend more than you can make? And you can't stop yourself from spending more than you make. Especially when you get down. Oh, it's going to be fun to spend some money, even though it's going to be a... I'm going to be in credit card debt. What do you do? What do you do when you just aren't happy? And since you're not happy, you don't want to make anybody else happy, so you've got this critical spirit. You can always find something wrong about everybody. Well, we see that in politics, don't we? And what about trapped in lust? They, do, they wanted to do, a, this is interesting, sad but interesting. They wanted to do a survey to see the interest between men who had seen pornography and men who hadn't seen pornography. You know why they couldn't do the study? They couldn't find any men that never saw pornography. That's the reality. 
So you, 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 you click on it and you see it, you watch it, and you promise yourself you're not going to do it again. And before you know it, you do it again. What do you do? What do you do if you're in the wrong relationship? I see people in wrong relationships, and the bottom line is this, I'd rather be with the wrong person than with no person. What do you do? Well, Paul gives us a, a wonderful promise and a clue uh, to what we should do. He said, the temptation in your life are no different than others' experience. We all think ours is unique, right? nobody's had it as bad as I do. Nobody's had this food addiction or this drug addiction or this lust addiction uh, as bad as I do. No, 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 no. We're all basically the same. Again, character of God. What is the character of God? And God is faithful. Means he will always do this, right? He will not allow this temptation to be more than you can stand or I can stand. Doesn't it feel like it though? Now here, part of the problem is it's, we try it on willpower, right? I'm going to stop doing it. And willpower, I call it will weakness because it doesn't work, right? But he said, wait, wait, wait a minute. He said, God won't allow it. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. And sometimes the way out is through endurance or is a period of endurance. I asked my grandkids about this. I said, in video games, are they, you know, I was reading this, and I don't play these modern video games, Fortnite and all that stuff. I said, do they have a way of escape? And he said, yeah, 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 you can build in a way of escape. And I said, okay. That's exactly the same thing here. God says, whatever temptation you have, God's built in a way of escape. So, every, next slide. Every temptation is an invitation to depend on Christ. I used to have an anger issue, and I raised my voice. My wife called it yelling. But anyway. <laughs> um, and I was determined that ne- next time I wouldn't do it. Well, guess what? Next time I did it, because I was trying to do it myself. So here's the key. It's an invitation to depend on Christ. Basically, you have to say, I can't. I can't stop doing this. God, I need your, I combine two words, grace power. God's a God of grace. God's a God of power. We need God's grace power. The power to overcome temptation. So Jesus said to this woman, he said, go, be free. Don't be trapped in sin any longer. Don't be a fish on the, on the sand. Swim free. Now one other issue, and let's, we'll finish up with this. Two words here. Remorse and repentance. Big difference. Everybody has remorse. Especially when you get caught, right? But often we catch ourselves, whether it's drugs, alcohol, food, pornography, whatever it might be. Remorse is you feel bad, you feel you wish you didn't do it, but you probably know that you're gonna do it again anyway, right? That's remorse. Hopefully next time you won't get caught. Repentance is a completely different thing. Repentance is a change of heart. Repentance is saying, I thought that was fun. There is some fun to it. I know it's fleeting. I'm smarter now. I don't want to be trapped. I want to be free. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn. I'm going to have a change of heart. I came across an interesting sentence uh, 
the preacher wrote this said, it's all about the re. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And if somebody would like this not on your outline, uh, text me or email me and I'll send you a copy of it. When you rebuke the enemy and return to God by repenting of your sins and receiving Christ, your spirit is reborn. Your mind is renewed. Your life is rebuilt. And while you're reconciled by the grace of Jesus Christ, you reap the rewards of a relationship causing revival to break free. So what do you do when you're broken, when you're disgusted with yourself, when you're embarrassed? What do you do? Throw that remote away. (laughs) Do you do what makes you happy? Now, sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventually pain to you. So I was trying to word some homework here, so here's what I came up with. If you, I shouldn't say if, because we do, think happiness and holiness are at odds, pray through today's teaching and ask God to set you free. Let's pray together. Wow. <laughs> this story tells us too much about ourselves that we didn't like, don't like. But it also tells us some amazing and wonderful things about you, God, that we love. And that you want to set us free. You don't want us trapped or imprisoned in sin. We call addictions Made it sound a little bit better. And God, we thank you that you provide a way to endure and escape. So this prison has a door. We have the key to the door. How amazing is that? And we weren't created to be in a prison of sin. We were created to live in freedom and in relationship with you, God. And so I know us, God. I know humans. I might say everyone, but almost everyone here (laughs) is in a prison of their own making. So God, I would pray for the, first the acknowledgement, and then for the wisdom, and then the courage to come to you, God, and ask for the grace power. And we know as physical human beings, one of the best ways to have victory is through a support group. So God, let us have the courage to join a group of people that held us accountable. Help us to acknowledge the fact that true happiness doesn't come through sin, but through obedience. God, I pray for anyone here that may not be a Jesus follower, that's thinking about it, contemplating it, that they would understand first and foremost their need for you, that you will forgive their sins, that you love them more than anything, more than life. You sacrifice their life for them. And that it's a free gift. If they accept that gift, they can be set free from eternity 
trapped in prison. God, so we, I pray for each person here. I pray for myself. That we would find fun in you, and that fun would be such a tremendous witness to other folks. Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.